then you better shut your fuck up, okay? Shut your fuck up indeed. Daniel Medvedev is a Grand <laughs> Slam champion and we could not be happier. Joel in the background is laughing. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. And look, Joel Frucci joins me here on the line. Uh, look, before we get into things, how good Daniel's a Grand Slam champion. Yeah, you better shut your fuck up, okay? Uh, no, freaking <laughs> brilliant. I just had to say it myself. It's uh, That's three times already. But no, it's look, it's great. Um yeah, what a, what a character the man is. Oh, we already knew that, but what a character the man is. And um, Look, it's just good that we're, we've got another male champion because we need them. We really do. Yep. Um, we had Dominic team last year, which was great. Um, obviously in front of no one, which was a bit of a bummer, but this time around we had the crowds back. Daniil got up. He's a new champion, first-time Grand Slam winner. That was the men's side, and we'll get to it in a sec, but the women's side as well. Oh boy, anyone expect that? How good was that? The tournament as a whole was just brilliant, Joel. Daniel Medvedev, as we said, uh, salutes. He beats a member of the big three in um, in a Grand Slam final in Novak Djokovic, who was going for the calendar Grand Slam. So history denied, which, look, I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty pleased about. And then you've got uh, Emma <laughs> Raducanu as well, what she was able to do. She went through 10 matches at the US Open didn't lose a set. She qualified 150th in the world, and now she's up to world number 23. Just a phenomenal effort from her. Layla Fernandez getting through to the final. It was just unbelievable. There were narratives aplenty, and we've got uh, Shane Leonage from Data Driven Sports Analytics. He's going to join us to chat about the patterns and the data trends from the tournament, as well as the players that he works with in uh, Arena, Arena Sabalenka and Ons Jabor. And then you've got, or uh, well, we've got uh, Steve Quick from uh, Ace Tennis Previews to join us as well, our great friend. Um, Steve is going to chat all things US Open, but let's get into the agenda. And look, we've got to start with the men's because L2 plus left, only legends will understand, Joel. That salmon <laughs> celebration right at the end, it just it just establishes what a character Daniel Medvedev is and, and just how much tennis needs someone like that someone that they can laugh at someone that can provide genuine humor and someone that we can all get around because if you if you told us 10 years ago a man that was 6-6 runs around like Novak Djokovic but just slaps his shots and has a weird technique was going to be winning a grand slam we probably would have punched each other (laughs) yeah probably and uh I loved what he said about his preparation as well um, on the day of the match, he said uh, instead of you know going and preparing or having a hit or whatever, he he watched F one and uh, he watched uh, Leeds United versus uh, Liverpool and was talking about who was in his fantasy team. Oh, it was funny. And then uh, he's all of us. I isn't think, he? It, yeah, he's. I don't know. He seems uh, well. We know he's a nerd, but like uh, <laughs> he just, other than the fact that he's a, a very uh, exceedingly wealthy and brilliant tennis player, um, that he may as well just be one of us. Um, mm. He really does, and. Um, I loved as well what he what he said about um, Emma Raducanu as well, where uh, he said that uh, he obviously said congratulations, but he also added that uh, he didn't think that would be enough to be in her movie, which uh, I thought was was quite funny. But um, look, it was great to see. What really impressed me uh, about Daniel Medvedev within the actual final itself against Novak Djokovic was. Um, how well he dealt with things mentally. There was a bit to deal with. Obviously, it was two sets to love up. And we all know that when you're playing against Novak Djokovic, that doesn't really mean much. Um, it's really only when you've converted match point that you know you've beaten. 
And then towards the end of the match, of course, there was the uh, the the folk in the crowd that were seemingly doing their best to put him off when he was when he was serving, which just quietly was uh, pretty disgraceful. I thought there's involvement and energy from the crowd, and then there was there was that that was that was quite piss poor. I thought, yeah. but also when he when he went and sat down to changeovers, um, you could just see how focused he was. He would just sit down and just stare forward and he was just so focused it was like watching vladimir lennon stare down capitalism it was he was just nailed on to the task at hand he really he really was just switched on and (laughs) and he got the job done it was great oh god that just went from zero to a thousand in 0.5 seconds that was um that was very quick um the ron burgundy that escalated quickly but look it was he was the concentration was there and and i think mentally as we said he wasn't there in the australian open final and djokovic came out and we said he had to match novak as well exactly right and he did he went toe-to-toe with him he and we know he can do that they've met nine times on tour and Djokovic leads 5-4. It's an even matchup. They play such great matches and such great contests against each other. And this time it was Medvedev because he served different. He went after his serve. His second serve was probably 20Ks faster than what it normally is. And then his ground strokes. He was providing the angles. He was going for things. He wasn't actually letting Novak deter him from playing his natural game, which is what Djokovic did in the Australian Open final. And we'll chat about that, we'll chat about that with Shane Leonage later. But... I think, as you said, in the last game, it was a bit nervy, but he just kept putting the foot on the accelerator and the foot to his, to Novak's throat and didn't let what was happening on the other side of the of the net really affect him because Novak just burst out into tears, of course, um, before that final game um, and just started crying because all the emotions, I think, kind of got to him. Um, all the pressure, all the talk, all the conjecture about whether he was actually going to win the Grand Slam, it all sort of arose, but... From that arose some unreal statistics in that we had a new male and female winner at the same slam for the first time since Roland Garros 2004, which was Anastasia Miskina and Gaston Gaudio. Emma Raducanu was one when that happened, and Daniel Medvedev was eight. It was the first Russian Grand Slam winner <laughs> since Marat Safin in 2005 at the Australian Open. Still, I think, the highest-rating tennis match in Australia when Leighton Hewitt uh, went down in four that night. Um, it was the, He was only the fourth man to beat Novak Djokovic in straight sets in a Grand Slam final. Can you tell me who the other three were? Oh, uh, okay. Rafael Nadal. Yep. Andy Murray. Yep. Wimbledon 2013. Stan Vavrinka? No, Vavrinka did no. both, both times. It was four uh, that was Stan four, beat him. Okay. He was a set down, so he won three sets in a row twice. The other one was Roger, all the way back in Novak's very first Grand Slam final in two thousand and seven at the U.S. Open. Mm. So only yep. four men have actually completed this feat, which I find staggering in itself that only four men have been able to beat him in straight sets in a Grand Slam final. It's very different on the other side, though. I think um, Rafael Nadal, I don't think he's... he might Actually, he's lost one to Novak, um, and then Roger has only lost one to Rafael Nadal. So it's funny that it doesn't happen to them much and that Grand Slam finals generally go beyond that straight sets if one of the big three is involved or, or they lose. So... Um, yeah, phenomenal effort from Daniel Medvedev, but just the ability, I think, for him to to block everything out, as you said, and, and just how quirky 
the man is. He's such a likable Grand Slam champion. And I think this really should be celebrated because now I think this opens the door to the future. We needed Definitely. we needed Joel. Sorry, I cut you off there. But we needed someone no, no. to beat a man in the big three that's outside the big three and win a slam. Last year was a bit different with Dominic Team because Djokovic got defaulted and he beat Zverev in the final. There was only one member of the big three there. This time, the one member of the big three got to the final and Medvedev had to beat him and he overcame the threat. And now this can possibly be seen as that changing of the guard. It doesn't happen much, but Medvedev has the belief now. And as would Alexander Zverev after pushing Djokovic to five, I think mentally he's still got a few things to work on, including that second serve, which at times is quite horrendous. But um, yeah, I, I think the door is open. Tsitsipas pushed Djokovic to five at the French Open final. Berrettini, as we'll discuss with um, Steve uh, from Ace Tennis Previews, he's almost thereabouts as well. Dominic team comes back. What can Roger and Rafa do? Um, but yeah, I, I think outside the big three, tennis is in pretty good hands. Yeah, um, I don't think it's quite a changing of the guard still just yet. I think these in quotation marks, these next-gen guys who have kind of been working for a little while. And I would even throw Dominic Team in, in there, even though he's a little bit older than, say, Daniel Stefanos and Alexander Zverev. Um, but you can kind of, I guess, sense now that the the bricks are kind of starting to stack up and these guys are going to be able to slowly climb that wall. And we, we've spoken a lot on this show, Val, about how, um, you know, Daniel Stefanos, Zverev, they've been able to do it in three, but they just have never quite been able to get the job done consistently enough, um, certainly when it counts, at the very pointy end of the tournament in a final in five sets. So not only for Daniel Medvedev is it a huge barrier broken to um, have not only beaten Novak in a final, in a five-set match, but done so so easily, I think... I wouldn't be surprised if you get guys, um, you know, those other guys looking at that match and thinking, you know, why can't that be me? Because they're all kind of in this little, this same little group where they're all after the same thing. And they've all been, they've just never quite been able to achieve it until now. But Daniil has done it. So I wouldn't be surprised if if those guys in their camps just kind of sit back going into 2022 and just say, look, we can do it. There's no reason why we can't. Daniel Medvedev's done it. Now it's your turn. Let's do it. Yep, and let's hope we do see that because we want to see as many new champions as we can. And and I think the, the there haven't been many um, in, in the men's game. I think we've only seen ten or so in the last eighteen years since since Roger won his first. So, um, yeah, the U.S. Open proving to be the catalyst for, for players to win their first major. We saw, I think, since Roger won his first, we've seen, um, or since two thousand, I think we saw Safin, Hewitt. Roddick, Del Potro, Murray, and now Medvedev and Chilich win their first Grand Slams at the US Open. Yeah. So that's seven, um, which is quite staggering um, at the US Open compared to, I think, the French was second with four. So there's a lot more um, breakthroughs at the US Open than we see anywhere else, which is great because it's providing us with a lot more entertainment in terms of less predictability. So brilliant stuff from Daniel Medvedev. Uh, commiserations to Novak Djokovic. Still nothing to be... Um, nothing. Um, to be ashamed of getting one match within the calendar Grand Slam. And um, with Djokovic, it's happened twice where he's made all four finals and 
Uh, it was Vavrinka in 2015, and it was uh, Daniel Medvedev in 2021 for Roger Federer. Both times it was Rafael Nadal who were his undoing at the French Open. So um, he sits in pretty elite company there, does Novak Djokovic. And Felix Auger, Aliasim, and Botic van der Zanschlup, I think we can give them an honorable mention as well. Van der Zanschlup was the only one to take a set off Daniel Medvedev, which for a qualifier outside the top 100, phenomenal effort from him and Felix Auger, Aliasim, just Brilliant for him to get through to the semis as well as Carlos Alcaraz in the quarters. Uh, yeah, for sure. And yeah, I think Felix is the really exciting one. We know that he's had some troubles converting his opportunities on the tour. Um, certainly when it comes to winning events, I'm not sure. I can't remember off the top of my head what the stat is, Val. Isn't it something like seven or eight or nine? Oh, and nine. Made and, oh, and nine. Yeah, that's yeah. And so, yeah, but you can just tell that he's creeping again, closer and closer. Um, and I think with him as well, it's it's interesting. Like it's a really, really close close run now with him and Denis Shapovalov about the the, the top dog of, of um, male Canadian tennis, which is great. Um, the Canadians will be licking their lips. they got two really good competitors. And yeah, Botic, Van der Zanschlup, whatever floats your Botic, I guess. Um, oh, no. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> no, but that was good to see. Um, and also we had... Uh, Pete, uh, Peter Goyovchik. Peter G. Um, <laughs> yeah, congrats to him as well. Um, yeah, there, there was some good story. He said G. Men's, um, yeah, or Peter G. Um, yeah, Peter Griffin. No, it was good. It was good. It was good. We had we had some new faces spring up in the men's, so it was, it was nice. Yeah, it was an awesome tournament, and I think the crowd being back also solidified that. The, the boneheads that spoke when Daniel Medvedev was serving for the match on match point Seriously, yeah. the, the umpire tried to stop them, and he didn't do enough, in my opinion, I don't, I don't reckon. But look, there's only so much he can do. The crowd was just, it was so inconsiderate. He's serving for his first Grand Slam title. And if you'll excuse my French, but this is going to be the fourth time it said, shut your fuck up. Because <laughs> uh. oh, Danielle is just the gift that keeps on giving. But um, yeah, I, I thought that was really poor. And it could have had a massive effect on the match because he double faulted on that one. Djokovic broke. And then... Mm. He looked very shaky in that game. He did. He really did. And then 40-15 up at 5-4, he double faults again. Luckily, his next serve was a rocket out wide and Djokovic didn't get it back and that was it. And then L2 plus left, that's all she wrote. Yep. Yep, the salmon celebration. Yep. <laughs> That's all. I think that's all we can really say on that. But moving to the women's, and it was Emma Raducanu in straight sets over Layla Fernandez, an all-teenage final, and it was the first all-teenage Grand Slam final since uh, it was Serena Williams and Martina Hingis at the US Open, I think, in 1999, which just absolutely staggering what these two were able to do. The top 19 of the top 20 seeds or something like that got through to, to the third round, and and everything was looking all hunky-dory. But then after that, the tennis script said, oh, no, 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 women's tennis is not being consistent this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, where do you even start with it? It, it, it was can't. great, though. We were listening, we were listening back to, to our show last week, Val, and our predictions, and we were both just way off the mark. I think I had Belinda Bencic knocking over Barbara Krejcikova, and you had <laughs> Karolina Pushkova taking out... Arena, who, who, Arena have, Sabalenka. Uh, yeah, arena and oh, I think we we made a we quipped somewhere along the lines there about what happens if it's Emma Raducanu and and Layla Fernandez, and sure enough, it's exactly what happened. But you know, what? I'm so glad it did happen because like from start to finish in the tournament, they just 
played fantastic tennis. And we're gonna we're gonna speak obviously more in depth about um, what exactly that they, they did to get themselves in that position because it didn't just happen. They obviously they they did something to get themselves there. But what, what I what I really loved about both of them was that they were both happy to be the aggressor. Um, and certainly when they were when they were uh, were returning, both of them just you know more often than not, whenever there was a chance, they just took the ball on the rise, take time away from from their opponent, and that really put them in the box seat. And um, you know, I remember probably the first time I actually got a really good look at Emma Raducanu's game in this tournament was when she played against Maria Sakari. And like, you look down at your phone for you know a few seconds, and you look up again, and before you know it, she's five one up. It was just it was just incredible. I, I couldn't believe the honestly, I'm going to say the, the ease with with which she put some of these big name players away. And uh, yeah, I mean, the same can be said with Layla Fernandez. Obviously, maybe she did it a little bit, um, a lot tougher, a little bit tougher. And yeah, yeah. And but 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 still, I mean, she she showed a great deal of not only mental toughness, but I thought the most impressive thing was the the mental maturity that that she brought. It was it was really really impressive. Yeah, well, to to defeat, I think it was three top five players in Osaka, Svitolina, and Sabalenka, and then defeat Angelique Kerber, who's a Grand Slam champion, a former world yeah. number one, and then it was Kaya Kanepi and Anna Kony in the in the first two rounds. None of those matches are easy. All of those players have been in the top uh, top twenty in the world. They'd won a combined fifty one career titles to Fernandez one. And she was able to absolutely, and she was able to outlast them all. And I thought it was, re- I thought it was super impressive. Um, and the fact that she made the final on the back of those epic performances, and and she was undeterred. And we'll speak about this yeah. with Steve as well. But I love the belief that she was asked after the match against Osaka, "When did you believe that yeah. you can beat her?" And I hate this question. I really hate it, Joel, because it's pathetic. It's like if a player actually answers <laughs> that they believed that they could when they were six one five one up. It's like, well, shouldn't you have the belief when you go out there on court? Things are even, just believe they're going to go your way, manifest it. And yeah, a lot of players obviously point. don't do that. But um, Leila Fernandez said, I believed I could beat her as soon as I walked out onto that court. And that's what I love. Just the belief that she can do it. And she did do it over Osaka. Then she backed it up again and again and again until she reached the final and ran into the Emma Raducanu train who qualified and won from 150th in the world and just, I still have no words to describe what happened over the last fortnight at Flushing Meadows because it was seriously, it was, it was just insane. So a brilliant tournament there. And, and also uh, Dylan Alcott and Dita DeGroote winning their golden slams, the Paralympic gold, and then backing up a few days later in Flushing Meadows. So, Amazing, amazing from them to win a Golden Slam. Djokovic couldn't get it done in the calendar slam, but those two could, and amazing effort from there. But it is time for our guests, and let's get to Shane Leonage right now. And our first special guest on the show, well, he's the catalyst behind the rise of Arena Sabalenka and on Jabur on the tour. I know that he doesn't like to admit this, but from data-driven sports analytics, it's our very good friend and the best data analyst in the game, Shane Leonage. Shane, thank you very much for joining us. And you, you were shaking your head a little bit there at the intro, but we know we know who the true hero is behind the scenes. How are you? Uh, thanks, boys. Thanks for the intro. And uh, 
I'm sure Anton and Isam, the, the, the respective coaches, when this gets back to them, they'll have a word with me, but uh, it's all good. Uh, they can take it up with us. It's fine. Joel and I can handle ourselves. But um, <laughs> the, the US Open was uh, was a very successful one for, for yourself, I think, um, in terms of um, the players that you had, and we'll get to those. But I want to ask, it, it was such a momentous tournament, and Joel and I have already touched on this, and and the narratives that came out of the US Open. It's the word we used a lot last week, narrative. And the final, we'll start with the men, Daniel Medvedev and Novak Djokovic. It was the calendar Grand Slam up for grabs. It was the maiden slam title for the Russian up for grabs. And it was, and I saw your tweet that in the Australian Open final, Djokovic came out and attacked Medvedev and really, and tried to use the middle of the court. I think that was along those lines. And he, did the complete opposite. So talk to me about that and what you found and what you observed from the encounter. Yeah, yeah. The, the Australian Open, I, I think it was probably the first 10, 15 minutes of that final really signalled what Djokovic was going to do. And he, he was uh, just going to attack um, Daniel's second serve in particular and go hard up the middle to his forehand. Um, and 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 really, even though Medvedev sort of fought back in that match a little bit, it, uh, that strategy sort of held and, and, and Novak won relatively comfortably. Um, I think in the final in the US and the, and the team, and I know the analyst that works on that team as well, um, and I ha- I've had a chat with him after, and that they knew, they watched that match, um, and they watched all the previous encounters, and, and the, the, the thing that they wanted to avoid was exposing Daniel early in the rally on the forehand side. So, um, yeah, there was a couple of things that they did. I think the second serve, Daniel definitely took a, a lot more risk. Uh, he served, I think, 10, 10 or 12 kilometres faster, um, and, and he's ball positioning on the serves on the second serve were uh, close to the line. So he, he really wanted to um, try and get the game played on the ad side. So what I mean by that is uh, more backhand to backhand rallies. So uh, he was able to do that. And then I, I guess the the interesting thing, and, and this could, could have been a bit of fatigue for, for Novak, could have been, um, you know, the weight of the occasion, but uh, he, he didn't want to engage in long rallies. Um, and, and, and when they did, Daniel definitely won, won, won them. Yeah, it was it was actually quite strange because the longer rallies are the ones that you see that more often than not would suit Novak. But Daniel is really happy to go toe to toe with him, and I think the one thing that I, I read that he focused on, and, and he actually hit up with Tony Godsick, Roger Federer's manager, his son before the match, and they focused a lot on the backhand slice. So that kind of coincides with what you said about the backhand to backhand. But the serve, I think, was the big one for me. How aggressive he was on the second serve, and. It wasn't always, and we saw that in the final couple of games, there were a lot of double faults there, but he was aggressive. And I think, is that more him not wanting to think about the situation or just trying to throw Novak off and just throw him off the patterns of what he might normally do? Yeah, Novak's such a, like, he's an elite returner. So he he did just want to make Novak uncomfortable and not not have a, a good enough play to get that ball back to the forehand Um the way that Daniel and, and you see it with the return, he lo- loves to have a lot of space and time. Um, when you're serving, you're you're right on the line. So if no- Novak, what he did in Australia, was able to get it back really deep to the forehand, and Daniel didn't have the time that he likes. Um, so uh, yeah, he wanted to avoid that, and I think it was deliberate. Um, he did get nervous towards the end, um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess that was the strategy, and it, and it paid off in the end. Whether it works going forward, I don't know because it is a high risk strategy. To, to do that and uh, whether you can sort of deliver uh, match in, match out, um, y- you never know. But, yeah, um, hats off to him for changing something and, and, and getting it to work. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
obviously we saw the one and two seeds uh, make it all the way to the final on the, on the men's side of things, Shane, but quite the opposite with, uh, with the women, with uh, Emma Raducanu and, uh, and Layla Fernandez. Um, I mean, obviously Val and I have already spoken about it, the fact that no one expected it. Um, what did you say, um, I guess, not only from Emma to actually win the event, but also from Layla to get herself into the position that she found herself in? Yeah, uh, look, it was, a, it was an incredible final um, one. And, and I guess the funny thing is that early on in, I think, week, week one, we were talking about, I think it was round three, all the seeds, the top 20 players had actually made it to the third round. So we're like, you know, business as usual. Uh, look how consistent women's tennis is. And then, you know, fast forward one week, <laughs> yeah. Got, um, uh, yeah, Emma Raducanu, who hasn't, I, I don't think she had won a WTA event match yeah. um, going in. Um and and Layla Fernandez, I have to say, I mean, she she's been on the radar for for a lot of people. She's got a big talent, but I think way ahead of schedule. <laughs> you were thinking maybe two three years, Layla Fernandez is going to you know be be, be a threat. But um, the fact that uh, yeah, she found her groove. I, I didn't think she played that well in Montreal or Cincinnati, um, and then she just found her groove. Uh, I guess at the U.S. Open, and in terms of how I think that they did it, well, they both. They've actually got all court playing abilities, and they they're both players that don't like to give the baseline up. So, um, what whilst they're not the biggest hitters on tour, the fact that they can take the ball quite early and redirect it, um, particularly Emma, she's able to redirect the ball on both sides really well. Uh, just just uh, yeah, I think a lot of the players just couldn't couldn't really handle that, and um, hence they they were the finalists. And before we do get to Emma, I did notice that about Layla Fernandez. She did have the ability to redirect. But you mentioned, uh, and through some things we did with the tennis menu uh, last year, watch out for Layla Fernandez. You said, wouldn't be right now, but in probably five, six years, she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. What made you say that early on? And then where can she still improve from here? Is it her ground stroke speed or, or, or where, where does the improvement come from? She's 19, top 30, Grand Slam finalist, played so well. What does she have to do now? Yeah, and I, I guess my my um, observation of it really started, I scouted a junior that played Layla. So I, I got firsthand knowledge of that. And then uh, Ons Jabur actually played her... Um, last year in Cincinnati, I believe, or in New York. And she lost the first set six love to, to Layla. And I was like, well, this girl can play. Uh, Ons managed to turn around, I think, with the variety. Um, but um, Ons was playing so well, it just surprised me that someone could come out and, and beat her six love. Uh, and then and then we saw, saw her play again on the gra- in the grass this year. It was a really tight match. So I knew it was the game was there. The issue was the serve. Her ball toss and her second serve, um, it wasn't great. Um, so that that needed to be fixed, and she needed confidence in it. And um, yeah, I believe there was a coaching change as well in in the middle of the year. And yeah, it's just it's just clicked ahead of schedule. I, I wouldn't have predicted it, but um, yeah, amazing to, for for her at her age to to reach the final. Well, it was amazing for her at her age and Emma Raducanu at her age of 18. And some of the stats were were genuinely unbelievable. Like, as I said to Joel before, the last time uh, it was, we had a brand new champion on both the men's and women's fields at a Grand Slam was in 2004 with Mesquina and Gaudio. Emma Raducanu was one. So it's, <laughs> it's absolutely phenomenal what she's been able to conjure up here. But 
I was so impressed with A, her ability to cope under pressure, but her ground stroke speed as well. I thought that was quite aggressive. For someone 18 years old, she didn't drop a set, 20 from 20. Um, what can you tell us about that and the patterns that she exhibited throughout the event? Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. Like if you look at, I think, uh, the speed, she was maybe t- she certainly wasn't at the very t- top in terms of ball speed. But the fact that she takes it early uh, means she's just taking time away. So um, that made made her ground strokes look a little bit faster than they actually were. And the other thing was she she more than anyone else on the women's tour was able to redirect the 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 the, the pattern of the ball. So that just took time and space away because players were expecting it to go back cross or or, or in, in a particular direction. But the fact that she's able to almost disguise that change in direction um, yeah, just uh, made her ball very, very hard to, to read. We're having a really interesting uh, chat off air, Shane, about one of your players, Arena Savalenka. And she was looking like the favourite once Ash Barty went, went down. But uh, obviously, in the end, she was a, a wayward victim. And she's, she's getting so close. Like, you can just sense that she's just creeping closer and closer every time. And... Uh, obviously, on this occasion, couldn't quite get it done. So moving forward um, into 2022, what do you think is the next step for Arena? What can she do to get to that peak? Yeah, look, I think the goal is now now the slams. Um, I think this year, a, a lot of the focus, certainly with Anton and, and Jason and Stacey as well, was to to get her to be able to play consistently well. And, and one of the focuses was to win matches when you're not playing well. And, and I think... I can say this year, we, we've certainly with the, I think she's got 41 or 42 match wins this year. Um, we can say that like she's consistent now. Um, and, and, and I guess the other goal was to perform at grand slams, which she, she hadn't been able to do and, and just have back-to-back slams where she reached the semi at Wimbledon. And I think uh, she played a great match, but Pliskova played a better match. I, I think the level of that match was really high. Um, and, and I guess the U S open, once you get there, you are a little bit disappointed. Um, but you know, she she played some 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 really good matches to get there. Um, yes, the pressure is is something all athletes will have to d- deal with, and her being the number two seed, it's it's going going to come with the territory. Um, and, and I guess the focus, yeah, for twenty twenty two is handling those situations deep in Grand Slams, um, and and hopefully we can break through. What still marvels me about Arena Sabalenka is the power of shot that she possesses and she was able to to get a lot of those in against Layla Fernandez and, and I think it's it's more and you mentioned pressure what did you make of, of that encounter and what did you make of of how the match played out because obviously it wasn't the way that Arena wanted it but the game style that she she was going about it in a natural game it was just Fernandez was getting everything back so is the next step as you said handling that pressure and then staying in those longer rallies and not trying to to sort of get ahead of herself. Yeah, it, it, it's probably a, a number of things. I think uh, just with her physiology um, um, and and her game style, that there's certain ways that she can play. And I think um, so maybe coming forward is something uh, there'll be a bit bit of focus. I, I think she's she's improved in that area, but mm. she, she'll keep working. She's very driven. So I, um, I know they've watched the the match footage after. Um, and uh, and they've had a couple of days off, but they're, they're now thinking about um, you know the rest of the season and and for next year. And, and it, it is probably to add variety. She's got the power um, off both sides more more than uh, most on the tour. She's got a big serve, but 
Um, I think that the women's game is changing, and you've seen it with Raducanu, Fernandez, Iga Swiatek a couple of years ago. Ons is doing really well, and it's the players that have variety, not just power, the ability to to do more than one thing, and and that's that's an area that Arena's working on, and and I'm sure she's going to to leave no stone unturned. Uh, sorry with the, the cliches, but uh, I feel like yeah, <laughs> she'll um she'll do what what, what it takes to 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 get there. And you are right. And, and Arena has by far been the second best player in the world this year behind Ash Barty and very, very, very close to the Australian. But I, I think you mentioned variety. You've got Krejcikova who wins the French, Barty who wins Wimbledon, and then Emma Raducanu who wins the US. All three of those have a really good variety. And another one who does have variety, who you have taken to great heights, and the heights are coming, is Onjabur. Talk to us about how, her year and what she's been able to do and, and the meteoric rise and the consistent rise. She's just playing such great tennis. She's exciting to watch. And talk to us about what she's worked on this year to, to further her career um, and further her ranking. Yeah, look, I think uh, obviously last year was a, a really good good year. It was a b- breakout year for her to, to, I think, get on the cusp of the top 30. I think she may have been 31. Um, and, and, and the focus was really, obviously, to, to keep improving the movement um, and uh, you know, work on the serve, get making, making that even more of a weapon for her. Um, and, and that was a big focus. And then uh, similar to, I guess, Arena was just consistency across the season, across all surfaces, and that um and that's something she, she she's been able to do and then uh trying to to peak for for the grand slams um and uh yeah the grass was a, a bit of a fun thing because she she actually hadn't played played on there for a while and we all theoretically said our oh, game should be suited to grass but we didn't know what it would be when she actually turned up there and she had an amazing grass court season and and i think the belief after wimbledon was she, she actually feels she can win, win a grand slam um and that's um, that's the confidence an athlete needs, and and she they're working equally as hard. I think to to finish the season off. Um, I guess with the frozen ranking points, you you kind of don't know where someone really sits. Yeah. Uh, and and I and and I feel like she she's been almost a top ten player, um, but um, she's at eighteen now. And uh, w- once those frozen ranking points drop off, we're really hoping um, we can have a good push to the end of the season and push the top ten. Fingers crossed that you can, and we know with your expertise that that is going to happen. Screw what happens on the court. It's all what happens in the data, and Shane Leonage is the best at it. Uh, data-driven sportsanalytics.com. You can check out Shane's work. And, and look, if you need data in anything, just contact Shane. He's an absolute legend. And um, thank you very much for joining us tonight and uh, giving up some of your time to talk about uh, the US Open, Shane. No, thanks, boys. I always love uh, jumping on your show. And, uh, uh, yeah, keep at it. Shane Leonage there from Data Driven Sports Analytics. And Joel, he's a he's a wonderful chat. And as is our next guest, we've got back-to-back. We thought after the US Open extravaganza, we'd have to get a second guest. And this man, well, when we put up a tweet, he responded straight away. We said, does anyone want to jump on this week? And our great friend Steve Quick from Ace Tennis Previews does join us. And we're so happy to have him back on the show. And um, he's a great supporter of ours. And we support everything that you do, Steve. So thank you very much for jumping on to talk all things tennis. And you've been in the bathroom we know that that's why you're a little bit late getting to the getting to the show did apostolos send you anything in particular about how to combat our questions or anything like that look he did he um i heard i heard shane delivering a a very impressive guest appearance and i just got a little bit worried so thanks for having me but yeah i had to did have to take a little bit of a bathroom break just to compose myself but i think i'm i'm ready to try and fight back now 
All right, beautiful. Well, we're, we're excited to see what you can produce on the show. What did you make of the US Open? It was a bloody good tournament. It was a bloody good tournament. It was, it had a bit of everything really mm. at the end of the day. And it, it had, it had history. It probably just wasn't the history that a lot of us thought we were going to see. You know, it had a couple of golden slams, particularly in the wheelchair tennis, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think it it's really shown, you know, I was a big believer in, and talked a lot before the, the US Open about how even the women's game is, but even, you know, what we saw there is, has taken it to another level. And I think that the women's game is, very very well placed for for the next you know decade at least yeah it was uh it was interesting steve val and i were talking about how to start really the the women's side of things kind of looked uh i guess quite regulation versus the men at least in the sense of what we're used to and then all of a sudden we've got these two teenagers <laughs> in the in, in the final and um yeah just crazy stuff but I mean, what was your favourite storyline to come out of it? Because as you kind of hinted at there, there were so many to come out of it. I mean, besides obviously the toilet drama of week one. No, I, I think it was I think it was the women's game. And I think like you said there, you know, the, the way it started, I think it was something like 19 of the top 20 got through, was it, to the third round and things were looking quite regulation. And then all of a sudden, you know, within the space of 24 hours, Asaka loses from 7-5, 6-5 up and serving. And then Ash Barty loses from 5-2 serving up in the third set. And it just flipped the entire tournament basically on its head. I think that that 24-hour period. So I think that's probably what, what grabbed me the most. And then watching, I guess, you know, the other seeds fall as they became, I guess, favorites to to raise the trophy. You know, we saw you know, Andrew Eskew struggle and, and you know, was injured a little bit and, and fell away. And then, you know, Sabalenka in the semifinal couldn't assume that role of, of being the tournament favourite. And then two hours later, you know, Zachary takes the exact same role and, and struggles as well. And we have two teenagers in the final. So I think it's just, it, that was probably what stood out to me most was just, I think every twist and turn that came with the women's game, you know, the, the men's game, you know, largely was, went to script you know, up until the final there. Um, but I think the women's game was was definitely impressive. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And I think what I really like about not only Emma Raducanu, but also Layla Fernandez was, I guess, when we kind of compare them to someone like Igor Fiontek, um, winning the, the French last year, I really like how both of them um, being so young kind of follow in that same mould where, what really impressed me about them was they were both really happy to kind of stand their ground as, especially as a returner and just really take the ball on the rise and kind of assert their dominance on the point really early. And um, I just, I really like that about them. And um, what well, do you, do you agree, Steve? Yeah. And I think particularly, you know, with, with eager last year, I think we'd seen obviously through juniors and we'd seen coming up, you know, in, in the kind of 12 to 18 months before she'd shown flashes and glimpses um, you know, at some of the other WTA tournaments, and then it all kind of came together and clicked. I think here, you know, Fernandez came in off not great form, I think, coming into it. I think she lost to Alison Risk 2-2, two and two, who, you know, Alison has barely beaten anyone else, I think, over the, the course of the last couple of months. And to be able to come in and then confidently dispatch, uh, you know, you're talking about some of the best in the game, you know, over the last decade. You've got Kerber, you've got Osaka, you've got Svitolina to be able to get there. And as you said, to stand her ground was impressive. Um, but then, yeah, the, the same with Raducanu. But what impressed me as well was their demeanour 
obviously between points, but after the match as well and after the final, notably, if you think about maybe the responses that other players have had to losing um, big tournaments or, or, or big occasions or just, you know, matches in general for some of them at the moment, the composure of Fernandez to kind of stand up there and appreciate and acknowledge the situation, not just for her on court and what had happened, but obviously what had happened to New York 20 years earlier when she wasn't even born, kind of shows how those two in particular have kind of, I think they've probably learned the lessons maybe of some of the people who've come through before them. And now it's their time to kind of reap the, the rewards of not having a, a dominant player there that's, you know, ripping through everyone slam after slam like Serena was, you know, a decade ago. Yeah, I agree. And and I think the composure that they both showed, and I love what Fernandez said after she beat Osaka. And it was, a, and I, I personally, from an interviewer point of view, I hate this question. When did you believe you can beat her? you could beat her. I hate that because if players say, oh, you know, when I got the lead at this point or that point, it's like you didn't believe you beat her from the start or you could beat her from the start. Fernandez said about beating Osaka, as soon as I walked on court, I believed that I could beat her. And that's what I love, the confidence and the ability not to be deterred by a situation. And that's what I loved about those two. And you bang on there. And um, what impressed you, I guess, the most about what Radakanu was able to do throughout the entire tournament? She didn't drop a set. She was composed. But what impressed you about her game? I think there's levels to it. And, and the easy answer would be to say the, the mental side of it in terms of her composure. When you look at what happened through Wimbledon, in particular, and, you know, a certain media personality from, from the UK who you know, perhaps had some not-so-nice <laughs> things to say about Emma. Um, I, I think her ability to step away in that moment and kind of take stock of where she's at and the fact that, you know, in her main draw debut to be able to make the fourth round, the Wimbledon is a phenomenal effort, to then back up, come in and play, you know, one of the lead-up tournaments, was it in Chicago or Cleveland? They all kind of blended into one. I think she made the final and lost to Towson um, in the final there. And to then kind of step off court there, go, right, I'm going to go and qualify for the US Open. And not only am I going to do that, I'm going to then make my way progressively through match after match and show a consistent level to win. You know, I think she only got taken to 7-5. Uh, six I four. It was in, Yeah, I think it was a 7-5 in qualifying against, um, I think in, in one of those rounds. And I think, yeah, Beyond that, it was just dominant through there. And I think I tweeted out a stat. I don't know the, I didn't calculate it again at the end, but I think it was in the the second game of the match when she was facing break points. I went back and kind of went through the, the point by point. She'd, she'd held or um, saved 22 out of the 25 break points that she'd faced up until that point. I think she went like seven out of seven early against Zachary. And she was just able to go in each of those moments, go, yep, sure that's fine. I'm going to, to save it. But then, yeah, as you said, about her game specifically, um, I think her ability, her return of serve and that first shot back to kind of trap whoever it was that she was facing on the baseline and go, well, yeah, you've served, but I'm in control of this point now because I basically put it back right at your ankles and what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly right. And it was um, against Miriam Bokvadze in the first round of qualifying. It was uh, seven or second round of qualifying. It was 7-5 in the second set. So other than that, she didn't get taken to 5 at all, which is just simply unbelievable. And it, the the one that I do want to ask you about is, and Joel and I said that there was no greater chance for her to win a Grand Slam, finally, and that was Karolina Pliskova. 
And I was wondering where you're going to go with that because you could have gone with a number of different names there. Yeah, I, I think because <laughs> she that's that's exactly right. But the the longevity I think of Pliskova, considering she made her first major final in 2016 and broke into the top ten around then, and she's been world number one before, but she's never won the Grand Slam. She's only made the two finals, had chances at Wimbledon, and this was arguably her best chance. And Maria Sakkari hit her off the court. Can she win one now, or is that? is your line firmly through her name? I am fairly firmly through. I, I'm, I'm through on hardcore and I'm through on clay. I, I think Wimbledon's her, her spot. I don't think the way and the state of the women's tennis at the moment is she is going to somewhere along that path of seven people to get through and, and win a Grand Slam. She is going to come across a player who has relatively decent movement and has enough power to be able to, you know, exploit her movement. I think on grass, and we saw it at Wimbledon up until, you know, the final, she, you know, she took Barty to, to three sets. But I think there she's more in control for longer. Whereas I think, you know, when, when we look at what happened to her, you know, last week, she finds someone who's got a capable serve who can hold serve relatively comfortably and can, you know, keep her moving around the court and it becomes, you know, a, a real trouble spot. So I think really her best chance was, she said it was at 2016. I think she was up a break in that third set against Angelique Kerber and, and just couldn't finish off. And I think that might've been the last chance, but I thought you might've gone with Sabalenka or Svitolina with that question. I didn't know where you guys were going. Svitolina definitely could have been the other one that's, I'll tell you what, Steve, like, I hope, I hope you're right about Carolina. I, I do hope she can win one because, I mean, we, we know she's bloody talented. But, well, the monkey's off the back for Daniil Medvedev. And um, bloody glad it is because, boy, did we need another champion. Obviously, Dominic team last year, but we needed – we still need more champions on the men's side, don't we? Definitely. And, look, it's nice to have someone in their 20s win one. That's quite, yeah. a, quite a novelty. Um, yeah, and look – it's it's a really interesting time for men's tennis because you look and you know we've had what 15 years of or you know close to at least parts of the big three you know dominating and then you can throw in Murray and Varinka and, and all those others in there too. But it's now about who's going to kind of go up and take that next step. And I think for so many, you know, a couple of years it's been the assumption that it's been Alexander Zverev, but through his own actions, it's kind of you know, the focus has now shifted elsewhere. Sits a pass spends most of his time now in the, the toilet avoiding the criticism. <laughs> so it, it's it's naturally fallen to Medvedev. And I think he is the guy now that he needs to now make the most of, and this goes into the Australian Open and it goes into next year. He needs to make the most of the fact now that Novak has that nervous point now of he is now looking to try and push ahead of Nadal and Federer in terms of slams one. So if he can make hay while the sun shines, he's in the perfect spot. And I actually think, you know, he's not that far off becoming world number one. And I'm just curious to see how Novak kind of goes with the rest of this year, knowing that there is a, a potential, you know, for a, you know, that one of, one of his big things and, you know, a, a lot of his fans hold on to is that, that streak of, of weeks at world number one. And it's in serious jeopardy, I think over the, the coming months with, with Medvedev, hot on his heels purely because he plays a bit more tennis than than Novak. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And Roger's record of 234 weeks. I, look, I reckon that'll probably get broken by Daniil. And now it's, it's really funny now that Medvedev has won a Grand Slam and now all of a sudden 
the only clear-cut one for Novak, and nobody's ever said this ever until probably right now, the only clear-cut one to win for Novak is probably the French. Mm. I think, and looking at this year, and it's going to be hard, and I'm curious to see what happens next year, because I think, you know, if Dominic Team can come back and, and find his level, then he becomes a genuine threat. And he becomes a genuine threat in that, you know, if he drops down this seeding, he could end up floating into a Novak quarter, for example. Or a fourth round. Through, yeah, exactly. So I think he's obviously one to keep an eye on. I don't think Varink is going to come back and, you know, we're going to be talking about slams. But the other one is you, you look at the 2021 Grand Slam form of Matteo Berrettini and go, he's actually not that far behind. The only benefit, if you look at Medvedev and you look at Berrettini, Medvedev as the number two seed just avoids Novak for longer really. Yep. And that's what, what was the benefit here in the US Open was he got him at the end. Berrettini got injured. Was it against uh, Kashinov, I think, at the Oz Open and had to um, withdraw yep. from his match. Yep. Lost at Roland Garros in four sets to Novak Djokovic. Lost in the Wimbledon final in four sets to Novak Djokovic and lost in the quarterfinal of the US Open to, to Novak. In four so sets. give him a little bit of extra... Yeah, give him a little bit of extra luck, I think, with his draw. And he's probably one who's edging towards, if not passing, you know, even sits a pass, you know, when you look at, at, at recent form and, and level across all the surfaces. So, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting 2022. And I'm curious to see, you know, how Novak goes, well, back here in Melbourne, if the Australian Open goes ahead, you know, at the start of next year or, or what really happens from, from here on in. Well, he is going to have to get a vaccination, and that's something that's been a little bit iffy from Novak Djokovic, <laughs> so we don't know where that's going to go. And, look, hopefully he doesn't go down the Joe Rogan path and uh, and have take some ivermectin. What was it, Joel? So, Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, let's it's hope. It's a nice, it... nice horse to wormers. Yeah. Let's, let's... Good stuff. Well, I don't even know why I brought that up again. But, um, yeah, it's <laughs> – um, look, it, it has been – the highlight of the US Open, Steve, before we let you go, what what was it? There were so many narratives and so many plot lines and, you know, there was even Botic van der Zandtrup, uh, what he was able to do and the women's draw. Then you had Oscar Otte, um, Peter Goyovchik, Carlos Alcaraz. There were so many. I'm, I'm going to say you've raised some very, very good points there, but I just like seeing the US crowd back, mm. to be honest. So good. And, and and I will use examples of, you know, a couple of the early matches. I think, you know, there was Tiafo against Rublev. Um, there was, you know, even Fernandez Osaka. And, and you know, that they love an underdog. And they also love, you know, when if there's a player that they want to watch more of, they love kind of flipping and turning against them and and trying to kind of extend <laughs> matches out. Hey, they even like cheering, you know, for um, you know, Holger Rune's name out and, and Novak can confuse Ooh. it as booing. So yeah. I think it's just nice to have them back. I think that's probably, that was probably my highlight to actually have, you know, full crowds there to be able to, to make the most of it. And even, you know, watching some of the outside courts and, you know, a lot of the people that I'm sure you follow on Twitter as well, who were you know in New York and, you know, watching everyone in those crowd packed spaces between courts and watching, you know, the likes of Brooksby and, and local players out there. Um, I'm hoping that we can see something pretty similar here in, in Melbourne in, in a couple of months' time. 
Fingers crossed we can. Um, hopefully things do open up very soon. Hopefully we can actually catch up in person very soon because we still haven't been able to do that. We've had a very long virtual relationship, the three of us, and um, Joel and I have been able to see each other in person. But Steve, we'd like to add you to that trio. So hopefully we can catch up at Melbourne Park or even before that as well. But thank you very much for joining us. You can follow uh, Steve's work uh, on Twitter at Ace Previews, and he's an absolute superstar of a human. And Everything that he has been able to do for tennis, he, he works so hard at just making this sport better and promoting it. Um, so at underscore ace underscore previews on Twitter and um, follow all the prompts on there. You can um, get around all of his work and you're a fantastic asset to this sport, Steve, and we appreciate you jumping on. No worries. Thanks very much for having me, guys. How good is Steve Joel? He's an absolute superstar and please follow all the work that he does because he does do everything to try and grow the sport of tennis and I absolutely love it and we love anybody uh, that does do that in this country because um, we do get starved at times and we discussed it with the ESPN last week having the coverage and that we deserve more as having a host broadcaster. Yeah, and well, sure enough, this week we do have one. (laughs) They must have listened. They must have. Yeah, I reckon. Channel 9 and Stan Sports have got all four Grand Slams next year. I think uh, 9 and 9 now will take the Australian Open and Stan Sports might have something to do there. But um, the same as what we had Wimbledon and the French Open this year with 9 taking two channels and then Stan Sports streaming every other court live, the US Open will have the exact same thing. And it's absolutely Awesome, because this is what we deserve as tennis as a tennis Grand Slam nation. We have a Grand Slam. We deserve good coverage. So I can't wait for this to be headed up. Channel yep. 9 have really made tennis their own, and it's absolutely fantastic. And, and I'm so excited for next year because we're actually going to be able to watch Australians play at the US Open, Joel. I know. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for, ne- I can't wait for, for next year. Um, yeah, and hopefully as well, as Steve said, we get to actually – have the Australian Open and go to it. That'd be nice. Yeah, I oh know. Geez, that would be nice. I really can't wait for that. I'm so excited for the Australian Open to to come around. And look, we didn't have a Grand Prix here, but uh, from from what I'm hearing, things are looking good to have the Australian Open here in 2022. So hopefully we can get a COVID-free year away in terms of tennis and have a proper calendar with proper crowds and proper atmospheres all around the world. But also, Joel, the WTA finals, uh, well, I think they're going to Mexico. This is unbelievable. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and uh, they're playing at high altitude, aren't they? Yeah, so they're playing at, I think, 1,500 uh, 1500, uh, metres or 1,500 metres altitude above sea level. Mexico is a fairly high place in terms of mountain ranges and all that sort of stuff. And I know there's a lot of, uh, I know, I think South America is very similar. I know that a lot of the Colombian cyclists um, are very good in the mountains of the Tour de France, Volta, España and Giro d'Italia as well, because they train at such high altitudes. But um, it's, it, it puts Ash Barty in extreme doubt with um, Craig Tizer, her coach, branding the location, timing and conditions for the prestigious event as ridiculous. And this is coming from Darren Walton uh, at the AAP. So with China off the table during the global pandemic, this year's Elite Eight uh, women, uh, Elite Eight Women season-ending championships will be played in Guadalajara, Mexico, before returning to Shenzhen in 2022. And Barty won the tournament two years ago in 2019. But Guadalajara, 1,500-meter altitude, who knows? That's going to throw that's going to throw a few curveballs. Yeah, you would think so. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I would love to hear from like a sports scientist or or something about that because I think it's really interesting. Like what what happens? Like you have to train 
your athlete differently or like what's the preparation like when you when you go to you know to play sport at that level because it's it's chalk and cheese you know when you consider i guess what, what we have or what we're used to um i just find it fascinating so look it's interesting but you know i'm sure if if craig Tizer doesn't think it's conducive to to ash then you know fair play it, it is a it is a an interesting choice to I don't know to kind of go outside the norm for the the premier women's events. I'm not not really sure that it's the right way of going about it. No, not at all. Yeah, look, they've got to get the tournament away. There's you know, as a lot of a lot of people do say, money talks, and there's a big check involved in this one and sponsorship rights, broadcast <laughs> deals that have to get uh, that have to get put away. So, yeah, it's uh, I think if there's a possibility to host the tournament anywhere, I think it should be done. And I think it has to be done. Guadalajara is a very interesting choice where they could just do it in America, but you know, each of their, yeah, own. I would have thought that would have been easiest. Yeah. yeah. But Mexico might get a, uh, might get a, a big tournament and look, hopefully they do it. I think it's an untapped area where, where tennis can grow. So we'll see, I guess. And look, Benoit of the week, Joel, it is our favorite Favorite time of the week. There are so many mm. nominations that we could give this week, but I'd like to know your thoughts on who should get it this week. Well, or who will get it? Yeah, this week. I mean you're right. Yeah, well, I mean you're right. There are a lot of uh, a lot of candidates. Um, I think this week we're going to go with a good one because last week we went with a bad one and we, uh, you know, we gave Joe Rogan a bit of a spray. Um, yeah, hope he's been kicked by a horse, to be honest. Um, but uh, I think. This week, no, we can't really look past Dan Raducanu, can we? Um, no. Yeah. I'm, I don't think there's any – obviously, we could have gone Danil, but just the fact that she was a quali, she's a teenager, I think it's got to be her. I agree. Emma Raducanu, our Benoit of the week after the US Open, and what an unbelievable fortnight. You know the only player to beat her at a Grand Slam this year, and it wasn't even a proper win, Ayla Tomjanovic. Ayla Tomjanovic. Yep. Wimbledon fourth mm. round. Unreal, unreal stat. So Emma Raducanu, well done. Daniel Medvedev, well done. All the champions at the US Open, also Sam Stozer as well. Ten years after she won um, the US Open in, in single, she wins it in doubles. So amazing feat from her um, with Jiang Shui. So brilliant from Sam Stozer, who's lighting the doubles world up at the moment. She's playing some phenomenal tennis. But um, Joel, thank you very much for your efforts today. It's been an absolute pleasure as per usual. Yep, it's been a good show, Val. See you next time. It has been, and Joel Frucci there, Val Febo, my name. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Facebook. You can like us, Breakpoint Podcast, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, and then subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms, where they're on Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, Anchor, and all the other different ones that you search the podcast. We are there. So subscribe, send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, this has been Val Febo and Joel Frucci talking all things US Open. We'll catch you next time.